Really quick before we get into this episode, I did want to do a little trigger warning because we are going to be talking about Rosemary and the procedure that she had done. So if you have a weak stomach or you have medical trauma, skip this one and we'll see you in the next. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know, sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. Imagine you are the best kept secret in the wealthiest, most powerful family in the world. Your mother says that what happened to you was the first occurrence of what is known to the whole world as the Kennedy curse. You're the most unlikely of characters, and yet you are the one out of all of the golden children to change the world the most. At the time, a lobotomy was the recommended treatment for subduing Rosemary's anger and giving her a more peaceful life. But this decision was also probably motivated by Joe Kennedy's desire to protect the family reputation as well. Rosemary's late-night escapes left her vulnerable to sexual exploitation, pregnancy, rape, violence. Who knows what could have happened to her? Are they still living in New York City at this point? Yes, it's a suburb of New York City. It's like just north of the Bronx, but it's right there near the city, yes. And Joe Kennedy was beginning to plan out his son's political futures. Family nurse Luella Hennessy said that Joe, quote, was so afraid of Rosemary's getting into trouble or of her being kidnapped, it would be better for her not to be exposed to the general public in case she ran away. Hennessy remembers that after years of trying to control Rosemary's erratic behavior, Joe's mentality was, quote, It would be better to almost close the case. Then there wouldn't be any more trouble. And that is ominous and nefarious, Joe. The surgery was a disaster. Allegedly, Joe talked to Rose about the option of a lobotomy as a potential cure for Rosemary's disabilities and violent behavior, but Rose was very nervous about it. The lobotomy procedure had only been in practice in the United States for less than three years at this point, and fewer than 100 patients had undergone the surgery. 
Rose ended up asking Kick to help her research and find out more about the procedure while she was working in Washington, D.C. at the time, where she met a reporter named John White. He had done a series of stories that year on mental illness and the treatments conducted at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Kick discussed Rosemary's condition with him and asked him about the new brain surgery her parents might be considering. White told Kick, The results of the lobotomies were, quote, Just not good. This is the worst part. This is the worst part. He said, quote, The patients don't worry so much, but they're gone as a person. Just gone. Kick went straight back to Rose and said, quote, Oh, mother, no. It's nothing we want done for Rosie. No one knows if Rose told Joe that she was against the surgery or not. Luella, the family nurse, also said that Joe always asked her opinion about the kid's health issues, but this time, he did not. She said, quote, I think he knew what I would have said. Allegedly, without telling Rose or any of his other kids, Joe ordered the surgery to be done on Rosemary. Sometime between November 10th and November 28th, 1941, Rosemary was admitted to George Washington University Hospital. She was one of fewer than 80 patients that her doctors had performed surgery on at that point. We have no idea if Rosemary knew she was receiving this surgery or not. According to the procedures at the time, Rosemary would have, quote, been strapped to a table and given local anesthesia near her temples where we would drill two holes through her skull. And do you know if Joe was told this information? I have no idea. According to one of her doctors, Freeman, sedation was only used when a patient was in a quote-unquote panicky state. The patient had to be freaking out entirely for them to put them under. Lobotomies had to be performed with the patient wide awake so that the doctor could monitor what he was doing as he made cuts into their brain. Freeman and Watts, her doctors, wrote that patients underwent, quote, unnamed tortures when having their hands and feet strapped to the operating table, their head shaved to the vertex, which is the top of the skull, and the outside world masked from view by towels and drapes. Then, quote, rattling of the instruments, the noise of the suction apparatus, and the menacing spark of the electrocautery. End quote. The doctors reported that the patient's suffering was often so intense that, quote, additional trouble caused by the operation passes almost unnoticed. Basically, the patients were almost always so stressed and so emotionally distraught, that they could not even feel the physical pain of the surgery. She would have been awake while she listened to the high-pitched drilling into her skull. Quote, Apprehension becomes a little more marked when holes are drilled. Freeman, one of her doctors, asked Rosemary to sing a song, tell him stories about herself, count, repeat the months of the year, Watts said that Rosemary complied with their requests. Then, Watts, her other doctor, aggressively cut more of the nerve endings from her frontal lobes to the rest of her brain. With the fourth and final cut, she became incoherent. 
she slowly stopped talking. It only took a few hours before the surgeons realized that the surgery had gone terribly, terribly wrong. Freeman claims that the procedure would make Rosemary less moody and more docile, which it did, and far more. Rosemary could no longer talk or walk. Even after months of physical therapy and constant care, she never recovered the full use of her limbs. She walked with one leg and foot turned in. It caused a really awkward hobble, and she had to work really hard at just walking. She only ever had partial use of one of her arms and could only speak a handful of words. The nurse who attended on her surgery was so horrified by what happened to Rosemary that she quit nursing altogether, haunted by the memory for the rest of her life. Following the surgery, lobotomy patients experienced uncontrollable vomit, restlessness, drowsiness, confusion, fear, and many became incredibly frustrated and cried or laughed uncontrollably. Rosemary needed help feeding, cleaning, and dressing herself. Kennedy niece Alice Gargan remembered, quote, They knew right away that it wasn't successful. You can see by looking at her that something was wrong, for her head was tilted and her capacity to speak was almost entirely gone. Rosemary's surgery was used in the doctor's research on prefrontal lobotomies and published a year later in 1942. Her case number is a mystery and the failures of her procedure are passed off as a footnote and used in vague references. Her doctors, Freeman and Watts, did not disclose the long-term devastating side effects of lobotomies. So it sounds like from their records, they were not telling families what was actually going to happen to the patients. Right. The doctors really just told the family members a skewed positive version of the truth and left out all of the risk that was really involved and the potential, the potential catastrophes and really the high risk rate. I feel like a really black and white example of that, if you read between the lines kind of, is they told the families that it was going to make the patients more docile and peaceful and able to let cope go, with everyday life. Yeah. Let and go manage of all their, their emotions. Stress. Yeah. Not including the fact that that was because they would be almost catatonic. The quote that Cassie read about Joe at the beginning makes me see how people think that Joe knew the risks and like still went on with it. And yeah, maybe I could see that too, but I could also see Joe absolutely thinking that this could be a potential miracle mm-hmm. and he being was always by looking his for that and cure and that perfect fix that miracle he almost has that personality where he's like untouchable and he yeah. feels like that's not gonna happen to me because I'm like manifesting the best most positive thing and that's worked for me in the past so it's gonna work for me now we are the Kennedys I think he just put all of his hope and all of his his eggs into this one procedure and was almost like unwilling to see the little bit of risk. Yeah. And maybe if he would have been more thinking more critically and looking for a red flag, he would have seen it, but he was like looking for an answer in Mm -hmm. this. And you always kind of see what you're wanting to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And exactly. If the doctors would have told Joe, 
your daughter is most likely not ever going to be able to walk correctly or talk. I really, really doubt that Joe would have gone on with it. I think he that was he trying to found, solve the issues and, and make her life better. So I, I don't know. I want to think the best and think that he wasn't just like closing a case, quote unquote. But like Rose said, it was the beginning of the Kennedy curse. So up until now, oh, they were just on their way up and nothing had taken them out yet. And after this, obviously, they get a dose of reality like mm-hmm. time and time again and bad things start happening. But you have to think about the fact that none of that had happened yet. Yep. They were in- still on their high of, of yes. being untouchable. According to the doctor's public records, many of their patients became forgetful self-absorbed, lacking emotion, even to the point of being uncaring towards loved ones. They experienced heightened sexuality, binge eating, childlike behavior, insomnia, weepiness, compulsive disorders, seizures, catatonia, the inability to walk, to use their hands or arms, or to take care of themselves. Yet, their research report concluded that, quote, 63% of the cases have resulted satisfactorily, and only 14% of the survivors can be considered bad. They also briefly mentioned that 9% of their patients had died as a result of the procedure. Just casually like, oh yeah, and by the way, we lost like almost 10%, but... And two of the patients in the report were so quote unquote, problematic as of a month after Rosemary's lobotomy that they could not be categorized in the reports. What does that mean? I don't know. What else is there? Yeah. Maybe it didn't solve their anger. It made them more angry. Yeah. Yet all of this and Freeman and Watts still claimed, quote, Most of the patients are able to live fairly active, constructive lives, free from harassing doubts and fears that characterize their illnesses, with their intelligence intact and their interests diverted outward. Many of them are better adjusted than they have ever been in their adult existence. Some of them are taking on new responsibilities and are equipped with sufficient energy and imagination to drive forward, unhampered by the restraining influence that has produced them previously to vacillating insecurities. Almost all of them find existence more pleasurable and they can adjust better to their environment. Almost all of them? I feel like that is just straight up lying. In the next two decades, tens of thousands of patients would be forced to undergo lobotomies in the United States. Watts eventually ceased work with Freeman, but Freeman increased his surgical output. He was a performer. He wanted attention and he carried a psychotic belief that he could change people's lives with the procedure. He continued to experiment even after other doctors and medical specialists petitioned for more restraint and for him to be supervised. Freeman stated that he could perform the surgery as well as a neurosurgeon and developed altered surgical instruments to reduce the time it took to perform a lobotomy this dude isn't a neurosurgeon and his one of his goals is to do it more quickly so that he can perform more procedures. I I can so see this guy absolutely lying lying to Joe. And guess what his quote unquote altered surgical instruments were? A modified 
ordinary ice pick that he would insert through the eye socket into a patient's frontal lobe. Over the next two decades, he conducted lobotomies on thousands of people, sometimes 20 or more a day. No surgeon is performing 20 surgeries a day. No, I can't even make 20 sandwiches a day well. I'm not going to be careful or purposeful. This dude obviously had some sort of issue and was in it for selfish reasons, was not trying to actually cure these people, or he was just doing it like as an investigation, an experiment. That's what I can't figure out. Can I find a cure? Because, and maybe he started out thinking, oh, can I find a cure? Right. And then ended up just being like, well, none of these are working. So just every person that comes in is an experiment. It's more test information. After the surgery, Joe felt like he needed to institutionalize Rosemary. And so he admitted her into a Wisconsin nunnery where she spent the rest of her life. If you're not Catholic, a nunnery is like a convent or a campus where nuns live, like in the beginning of The Sound of Music. After Rosemary went to the nunnery in Wisconsin, she really was not talked about by her family, in the public eye or in their private correspondence. You know those round-robin letters that Rose used to write everyone? Well, as the Kennedy siblings got older and moved out, they became more like family newsletters. The first two pages would be a general letter typed up by a secretary with all of the family news, and then a paragraph or two about each member of the family was added after that. The letters would end with a handwritten note specific to each child from Rose, and the letters were mailed. But for the next two decades, Rose never referred to Rosemary. Her existence just ceased at the end of 1941. It is not known what Rosemary's siblings were told about the surgery, but it could not have been much. Their youngest sister, Jean, was only 13 years old at the time. She was told that Rosemary had, quote, moved to the Midwest and had become a teacher, or maybe a teacher's assistant. Teddy, the youngest of all, was especially upset by Rosemary's sudden disappearance. At just nine years old, he thought he, quote, had better do what dad wanted for the same thing could happen to me. Rosemary's mother's reaction to her tragedy is not recorded. Eunice's son, Timothy, said in his memoir, quote, Members of mother's family were in the midst of such a flurry of activity at the time that they apparently never questioned one sister's absence until much later. Jean agreed, quote, That was the way things were going then. We all just kept moving. When I first read that part of the script, I was thinking there's no way. It's like when your parents tell you something and you know it's not true, but you don't really want to open that can of worms, so you just ignore it, or you think that there are issues happening in the family, but like there's an elephant in the room and no one wants to, to just go down that rabbit hole. And I thought they had to have known something was up because especially the older kids were old. Like they're not nine and 13. Mm -hmm. And even as a 13 year old, I would think there's no way if my sister's around all the time and then she's gone, but everyone is going all over the place all the time. And Rosemary has technically been gone out of the house since she was 11 years old. Yeah. So putting that into perspective and thinking, oh, she's just at another one of these homes or she's at another boarding school. And she had worked with children before in London. And so Jean, as a Mm 13-year-old, 
hearing that her sister has moved to the Midwest to become a teacher, I can see how you would think, okay, that's not that far-fetched. One sibling that this did not slip past, though, was Eunice. Her classmates remember that in the fall semester of 1941, she became distant and seemingly depressed. She had been going to Sacred Heart in Manhattanville, but her mom wanted her to go to Stanford. So she ended up transferring all of a sudden during winter break. It may have been because her mom thought that the physical distance from home would distract her from Rosemary's absence. It doesn't seem to have helped, though. Classmates from Stanford remember her as overly thin, weak-looking, and disheveled. Rose ended up moving to California to be with her because she was so concerned for Eunice's health. Eunice later shared that she did not know where Rosemary was for at least a decade. So that means that she's asking her mom. Her mom's living with her, and her mom is just not answering her. I'm sure there was lots of conversations and weird interactions of Rose just shutting it down. There's no way she didn't ask. No, and there's no way that Rose didn't know that that was why she was so unordinarily out of sorts. For Christmas in 1941, America had just entered World War II and the Kennedy family was together at Palm Beach without Rosemary. It was a low-key holiday for the family. Kick and Pat left right after Christmas to celebrate New Year's with friends. Eunice went off to California to start the next semester at Stanford. Joe Jr. was in the Air Force at this time, so he went back to Jacksonville, Florida. And Jack was working at the Naval Intelligence Office by this time, so he went back to Washington, D.C. Rose stayed in Palm Beach with Gene, Bobby, Teddy, and then Joe Sr. began focusing on his son's political futures, namely Jack and Joe Jr. at this point. So it's really like they they all come together. Rosemary's missing, but then they all scatter very quickly. Only one of the very frequent letters written by the Kennedys during the first year after Rosemary's lobotomy mentions her. I also want to know about the letters. Were those letters never written? Did they really never mention Rosemary? Not only one time in the year after she was after the lobotomy, or were those letters destroyed afterwards? Joe wrote to Rose, who was living in California with Eunice at this time, and I think that this might be the one time that Rosemary is mentioned. He said, quote, Stopped off to see Rosemary, and she is getting along very nicely. She looks very well. From the letters, it seems like Joe was the main point of contact between Rosemary and the rest of the family in the following years, not just that first year, but continuing on. And the news that he shared about her was spotty and vague. Most of it was only directed to Joe Jr., Jack, Kick, and his wife Rose. From 1942 to 1944, only six letters mention Rosemary. So one from 1941 to 1942, then from 1942 to 1944, six letters mention Rosemary. But there's no reference to her surgery or where she was living. The fact that he only really mentions Rosemary to the oldest children Mm -hmm. also makes me think that they could have told, the parents could have sat down with the oldest kids and told them, but thought the younger ones are are too young and wouldn't understand or- It would just traumatize them. Yeah. And it freaked them out too much. Mm -hmm. So maybe the older kids knew something 
had gone wrong and to just go along with this story that Rosemary's a teacher. Yeah. For the for the sake of the younger siblings. Cassie and I will absolutely be discussing the different conspiracies, theories, and perspectives that we have on the things that happened after Rosemary's lobotomy because there are so many different people and characters and events that have happened pre and post lobotomy that make us think certain ways. So if you're interested in that at all, tune in next week for the Kennedy Family Meeting, episode four. There is also no record of Rose visiting her oldest daughter for more than two decades. Anne Gargan, the Kennedy niece, later remembered that the procedure was, quote, an absolute devastating thing. But once it was done, Joe decided that he had to protect Rose from the heartbreak, believing it would shatter her to see her daughter that way, while it would do Rosemary no good at all, since she no longer realized who she was. Joe was wrong, though. Rosemary had not lost all of her consciousness, and the absence of her siblings and parents was devastating. In her memoir, published in 1974, Rose wrote briefly that Rosemary had undergone an undisclosed type of neurosurgery. Years later, she bitterly explained that, quote, Joe thought the lobotomy would help her, but it made her go all the way back. It erased all those years of effort I had put into her. All along, I had continued to believe that she could have lived her life as a Kennedy girl, just a little slower. But then it was all gone in a matter of minutes. Because of the societal perception of mentally disabled people at the time, the Kennedys really just kept Rosemary hidden. Shortly after the surgery, she was whisked away to a psychiatric facility called Craig House, located on the Hudson River, 50 miles north of New York City. Its quote-unquote remote location, yet close proximity to the city, made it the chosen place for society's elite to send their addicted, disabled, and mentally ill family. Zelda Fitzgerald spent months at Craig House in 1934 to rehabilitate from her overwhelming depression. Ooh, I think we're going to have to do a related mini-sode on Zelda. Absolutely. It was a luxurious facility with all of the best treatments available at the time. Intensive talk therapy, recreational activities, healthy foods, and a peaceful environment. Joe provided extra private nurses and personal attendants for Rosemary. A hairdresser, laundry, pharmacist, even a tailor. These private services for Rosemary exclusively added up to about $2,400 per month at the time, in addition to the $50,000 per year tuition at Craig House. Today, that would be $43,000 per month, almost $44,000, just for the extra services on top of the nearly $1 million per year tuition it cost to stay at Craig House. So literally only multi, multi-millionaires and billionaires are sending their family members here. You've got to be in the hundreds of millions because you're spending a million a year just on the base tuition for one person. For one family member. Medical insurance was barely a new idea at this point, so like you said, only the filthy rich 
could afford a service like Craig House. It was supposed to be a more temporary move for Rosemary. They didn't have a long-term rehab treatment plan in place for her there, but she ended up staying for seven years. Her physical disabilities ended up as severe as her mental disabilities ended up after the lobotomy. There is no record of Rose or any of Rosemary's siblings visiting her during her early years at Craig House. There is evidence that her dad showed up, but only a few times. Mary Moore, her godmother, saw her more frequently and acted as the family's informant of how she was doing. Part of the reason that they hurried to send Rosemary away was to hide the full truth about her condition from America. The Kennedys were obviously very concerned about their image, and Joe Jr. had his eyes set on the presidency by this point. Many years later, Rose stated that what happened to Rosemary was the first Kennedy tragedy. The thing is, the Kennedys never really hid Rosemary until the lobotomy. They consistently pushed her out into society to become herself and contribute to the world in any way she was able. They pushed her not to hide, but to fly higher, reach further. It was not until the Kennedys had something to be ashamed of that they made Rosemary the family secret. By 1947, Jack had won his seat in the House of Representatives for Massachusetts, and Rosemary's proximity to New York's elite made Joe Kennedy nervous. He knew what he had done was a grave mistake. He knew what had happened to Rosemary. What he had done to his daughter made her much more of a threat to the family name than she ever would have been before. Prejudice of Rosemary's original disabilities did not hold a candle to the tragedy that came from his decision. He had never guessed that this would have been the outcome. But did he place ambition over family loyalty? Or was he just a scared father who trusted the doctor who promised a better life for his daughter? Because Jack was gaining more public attention in politics and bringing more spotlight to the Kennedy family, Joe needed to move Rosemary from Craig House to somewhere less public. He began searching for a better long-term solution. A treatment facility in Massachusetts or Florida would have been most convenient for family visits, if they were actually going to visit ever. But abuse was rampant in those places. The Catholic Church had been building residential homes for the disabled, therapeutic centers, and schools for the mentally and physically impaired for years at this point, and so Rosemary was moved to one of their very private rehab centers in Wisconsin and was cared for by the sisters there for the rest of her life. She swam every day just as her mother had done with her. Sister Margaret Ann, who cared for her, said that the move from Craig House had been traumatic. Quote, Rosemary was very uncontrollable when she first got here. She was upset, sad, and feeling, quote, inferior to her brothers and sisters. But a caretaker from her later years reported that she eventually understood that, quote, in God's eyes, she has worth and value. She is a wonderful, remarkable woman. So she was still there. Rosemary's spirit was still inside of her. And that's why it hurt so badly that her family disappeared. She was like, something happened to me. I'm conscious that I'm different now. 
And now my family is not coming to visit me. Yeah, she was totally abandoned. And that is where the Kennedys really, really went wrong. The lobotomy was a bad, bad choice, but- They could have just made the most of a, of a terrible decision and stepped up to the plate and done what was right and tried to be there for her and alleviate as much loneliness and mental pain- And stress. And stress as they could- but they didn't. How they treated Rosemary and how they handled the whole thing is the one thing that I do not understand about the kid. It's the one thing that just does not sit right with me about the Kennedys. I don't know. It's like day after day, month after month, year after year. Continually choosing to ignore. And I, and maybe, yeah, like the Anne Gargan, the niece said that Joe thought she's just not there at all. She doesn't know who we are and she doesn't care that we visit her. And it's really painful for us to see what we've done. I can see that. I don't think that that's the right choice. Even if you think she's in a coma and can't even speak or hear, I would still go visit. You know? Yeah. The only thing that I could think, okay, I understand-ish, is if he, since we knew so little about the brain back then, we still know very little. But back then it was like, they were just throwing ice picks inside of eye sockets. <laughs> exactly. And if if her doctors were telling him, yeah, she's not there. Like she's absolutely no, you have no effect on her. She has no right. idea who you are. You are not a familiar face to her. She can't talk to you. She can't. And he can see like she obviously is very, very, very different now and doesn't seem to be reacting to me. I can kind of see where he would think, okay, it's just harmful to the family and not helping Rosemary. But what I don't understand is this quote that you just said about how Rosemary, like how did people know that Rosemary was grasping that God still loves me and that I'm still worthy in his eyes? Like that is a very complex thought. Yeah. Yes. And like existential, like how do you grasp that from if Rosemary is so out of it? They were doing like physical therapy to where as time went on, Rosemary was able to communicate a little bit more. And maybe Joe kind of made his decisions or his built his idea of who she was and her capabilities right after. And she really wasn't able to afterwards. But yeah, in months and years of therapy and learning to communicate maybe with written language or pointing to things. Because the beginning of that transition was seven years after her lobotomy. She stayed at Craig House for seven years. And the nun said when she came from Craig House to the nunnery in Wisconsin, she was very insecure and upset. And by the end of her life, she had accepted God does love me. I am worthy. I am a child made in his image. But that could have been a very slow process. I don't know. She, I know she went swimming a lot in Wisconsin. So she did have um, some motor skills left. Yeah. Mm-hmm, but I don't know immediately after what that looked like. Yeah. Because her dad would have been gone by then. Yeah. Well. So I don't really know. Obviously, it's a very tough situation and I can't really put myself in his shoes. It's not 1945 anymore. We do know a lot more about consciousness. I am not a parent. I have not taken somebody's quality of life from them. I am not a super powerful person who feels like they're having an effect on the world at large. So I can't understand it, but for sure it was the wrong thing to do. Joe built a one-story brick ranch-style cottage for Rosemary and two specially trained nurses who would live with her full-time. It was informally named 
the Kennedy Cottage. It was located about a mile from the main St. Coletta campus in Wisconsin. This cottage would become Rosemary's home for nearly 60 years. Rosemary found friendship and security with the nuns, staff, and patients in Wisconsin. They became her substitute family. Reporters would often come by and try to uncover Rosemary's story, but the nuns were relentless in protecting her and keeping her life private and safe. Sister Mary Charles wrote, quote, I tell her she is the princess and we are her three attendants. She loves this. After all, the main thing Rosemary wants is love and attention. Joe corresponded with the sisters to make sure that she had individualized therapy and care and always told Sister Anastasia, who oversaw Rosemary's care, quote, All you have to do is do it and send me the bill. Rose later claimed to her niece, Anne Gargan, that she was kept in the dark about what happened to Rosemary for two decades. Anne said Rose, quote, I had to piece the story together chapter by chapter. Rose begged for years for her friend and family's advisors to tell her what had happened. Luella Hennessy Donovan, the family nurse, told her the same as everyone. Quote, Because I did not know. Many historians believe that Rose's story was false. In her 1974 memoir, she wrote that she and Joe consulted with, quote, eminent medical specialists who told them that there was no other choice for Rosemary, but that she, quote, should undergo a certain form of neurosurgery. Joe had discussed the surgery with her, and from what people have discovered, it seems that, like we discussed earlier, Rose did, in fact, ask Kick to further research the procedure beforehand. Joe may not have cleared it with her for the final decision, but she surely could have easily put the pieces together once the surgery was done and Rosemary disappeared. Through the letters that survive, it can be concluded that it was impossible for Rose to remain as ignorant as she claims. One woman at St. Coletta, Gloria, became a steady friend to Rosemary throughout the years. Gloria had suffered brain damage from a car accident and couldn't learn any new music, but she was still able to remember the songs that she knew from before her crash, and she would play the piano for Rosemary for hours and hours. Gloria believed that's why Rosemary was so fond of her, because it reminded her of when her mom would play the piano for her and her siblings when they were kids. In a letter to Sister Anastasia, Joe expressed how deeply grateful he was for the kindness and loving care the nuns provided to Rosemary. And in another honest moment, he told her that St. Coletta had offered, quote, the solution to Rosemary's problem, a major factor in the ability of all of the Kennedys to go about their life's work and try and do it as well as they can. It's kind of what you were talking about earlier. Later, in an interview with the Nashville Tennessean in July 1960, Joe said, quote, I don't know what it is that makes eight children shine like a dollar and another one dull. I guess it's the hand of God. But we must do the best we can and try to help wherever we can. Joe Kennedy. Are we sure he was talking about Rosemary, though? Because <laughs> I don't think she was the dull one, but... 
She definitely didn't end up being the dull one. She was the freaking shiniest of she them all. She was the shiny penny. The perception for years as the Kennedy name grew into the glamorous legend we know today was that Rosemary was just a private person and teaching at a school for handicapped children somewhere in the Midwest. Certainly no one knew about the lobotomy, but Rosemary's intellectual disabilities were known to a small circle of advocates, most of them parents and siblings of the disabled. They were really excited when Jack Kennedy was nominated for president because someone in power would finally know what it was like to love someone whom society mistreated so terribly and could do something about it. Unfortunately, up until then, they had tried to reach out to the Kennedy family while they were senators and representatives, but had gotten no response. Jack didn't even endorse the first mental retardation bill that provided rehabilitation and educational programs that came up while he was a senator. A frustrated advocate said, quote, He didn't have to tell the world that he had a retarded sister in order to support that legislation, and yet he didn't support it. But then, something happened. While campaigning for a second term as senator, Joe encouraged his son to make a trip to Jefferson, Wisconsin. This was the first time that Jack would visit Rosemary since her surgery. What Jack knew prior to this trip is a mystery, but what he saw on this trip changed everything. He saw his sister. He saw what the world she grew up in had done to her, and he decided to do something about it. In 1958, JFK was one of 11 senators to support their states with federal assistance to further research and education for mentally disabled children. This new legislation eventually became the blueprint for specialized education under the Higher Education Act of 1965. Back in 1947, the Kennedy Foundation was established and Eunice was appointed to their board of trustees. So, in 1958, while Jack was gearing up to run for president, Eunice proposed to her father the idea of funneling more of the foundation's resources to support the intellectually disabled. Up until that point, most of the foundation's pledges had been dedicated to the poor and needy through mostly Catholic and some Protestant Christian charities. But she wanted to focus on funding research into the causes and treatments of intellectual disabilities. She went around and visited hospitals who were caring for or hospitals that had educational programs for the disabled. She needed to find passionate people who would be able to conduct research while ethically caring for the patients involved. She found two hospitals in Massachusetts and wrote to her parents, quote, The hospital was doing so much and doing it so well that they can take my money and spend it. Eunice and her husband, Sarge, established an advisory board and appointed Dr. Robert Cook, the head of pediatrics at John Hopkins University. Two of his children were intellectually disabled, and he viewed disabled children not as a problem to be hidden, but rather an area of pediatrics that needed reform and progression. The Kennedy Foundation also focused on tearing down social stigma, misunderstanding, ignorance, and on building care, education, medical services, support, outreach, and homes for the disabled. Though Joe Kennedy loved the spotlight for most of his life, many donations from the Kennedy Foundation were gifted anonymously. And with Eunice's new vision, Joe quietly transferred control of the Kennedy Foundation's donation department to Eunice and Sarge. 
In November 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was elected to be the next president of the United States. The official publication for the National Association of Retarded Children, Children Limited, revealed the truth. Under a photo of Jack with one of the association's presidents was written, The president-elect has a mentally retarded sister who is in an institution in Wisconsin. Immediately after publication, a memo was sent not to repeat the information. But things were changing. Quote, I used to think it was something to hide, but then I learned that almost everyone I know has a relative or good friend who has the problem. I think it is best to bring these things out in the open. Joe Kennedy, Time Magazine, July 1960. Once Jack became president officially, Eunice had him establish a committee within just a few short months of being in the Oval Office. And that committee went on to study developmental and intellectual disabilities of children. Jack poured money into the Department of Mental Retardation, and Dr. Cook, the one with the disabled children that had worked with Eunice previously, was appointed to make sure the children would be well represented. By the way, this was in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the, if not the, most dangerous and volatile moments in all of American history. And with a looming threat of potential nuclear war hanging over his head, Jack still paid close attention to the process, making sure that there would be new laws passed to protect those with disabilities and provide support that they had never received. Just a month earlier, Eunice had written an article that was published in the Saturday Evening Post where she shared, quote, Keeping a retarded child at home is difficult. Mother always said the greatest problem was to get other children to play with Rose and to find time to give her all the attention she needed and deserved. Experts later credited Eunice's article with opening the door for public acceptance of those with intellectual disabilities. In 1961, Eunice, seeing that few children with intellectual disabilities were enrolled in sports or in any physical activities, and remembering how much Rosemary loved to be a part of competitions growing up whenever she could, had the idea to host a day camp for local disabled children at her home called Camp Shriver. At her home? That's so cool. And Rosemary also loved to play tennis, remember? Yes. And she always felt really left out whenever everybody else could play something or participate in an activity outside, and she couldn't. By the way, Camp Shriver is named that because that was Eunice's new last name after marrying Sarge. The next year, she pulled in volunteers from nearby colleges and parents to work as counselors, enabling the kids to compete in running, dancing, swimming, rope climbing, horseback riding, and ball games. Today, that camp is known to millions as the Special Olympics. And everyone starts crying. crying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm freaking bawling. Okay. It's just a spark. Mm. Okay, stop, don't even. Oh my gosh. I'm sweating. Siblings, man. They change the freaking world. In 1968, once Camp Shriver had gotten a little bigger and had camps in a few cities throughout the country, Eunice wanted to scale it up and she really had a vision for more national acceptance. So she partnered with Chicago's Park District and the Kennedy Foundation and she renamed the program. That year, 
The competition was held in the 80,000-seat Soldier Field Stadium in Chicago as the very first Special Olympics. The event took place in July, just one month after Bobby had been assassinated. And Eunice, even though fewer than 100 people showed up to watch the games, and even though she was still freshly grieving her brother's death, she still showed up. She welcomed the athletes and right then and there announced that the Kennedy Foundation would be committed to funding the Special Olympics and promised to host another international event every two years. Now, four million athletes, ages two to 99, participate every year in a global competition that involves 200 countries. In 1961, less than a year after Jack was inaugurated, Joe Sr. had a stroke. It left him paralyzed and unable to communicate, just like Rosemary. Afterwards, Eunice took over the management of Rosemary's care, and Rose did begin to visit her daughter in Wisconsin and have her flown out to Hyannisport for visits later in life. But only after Joe had his stroke, which is interesting. It does seem a little bit suspicious. In 1974, when Sister Margaret Ann told Rosemary that she would be going home for a visit, Rosemary responded with two words. Bronxville and European. Bronxville being the last house that she lived in full-time with her brothers and sisters. And European being the school in England that she loved so much. And also some of her happiest times, traveling in Europe with her family times we will discuss next episode. On one visit to Hyannisport, Rose was trying to get Rosemary into the pool, but she refused, and the nun who was there helping said she, quote, looked straight ahead like a dutiful child who has been punished for misbehavior. The nun said that Rose whispered, quote, Oh, Rosie, what did we do to you? Those who were around Rosemary when her mother was there said that they could tell that Rosemary was very uncomfortable, and still angry with her mother. They thought she must be able to remember her surgery and that her mom did not show up afterwards. Sister Margaret Ann believed that Rosemary blamed Rose for not protecting her like every child expects of a mother. Especially since Rose had been Rosemary's advocate up until that point and they had done everything together. In December 1962, hold on, I want that to sink in a little bit. The abandonment that Rosemary felt must have been enormous because now that I'm really thinking about it, Rose not only had been her biggest advocate and ally and best friend, companion, everything, but to go from knowing that no matter what, I have my mom on my side, my mom is- She, every single place that her mom had ever put her or sent her up until this point had been wonderful. And And safe. Yeah, safe. Exactly. And she could always know my mom has my back. My mom is doing things with my best interest at heart. And then to have that happen and it be radio silence, absolutely no one showing up for her, not even her mom. And I'm sure that she was holding on to hope for days and months that her mom was going to show up. My mom hasn't forgot about me. I know my mom's going to come. 
And then she doesn't for two decades. And that reminds me of her letters that she would send from boarding school. I'm so lonely. I miss you guys so much. Please write me a long, long letter. Please come see me. I haven't even put that together, but that's exactly what she begged for them to never do to her. In December 1962, the Kennedys hosted a gala dinner in Washington, D.C., where Jack presented the Kennedy Foundation's first international awards in mental retardation, recognizing outstanding achievements in the medical and scientific fields of intellectual disability, advocacy for the cause, and outreach. On February 5th, 1963, JFK delivered his, quote, special message on mental illness and retardation to Congress. And that fall, he signed two very important pieces of legislation. One encouraged states to update and improve programs for the intellectually disabled, and one authorized funding for pre- and postnatal care, linking families to resources and services to help prevent disabilities. Because he probably believed that Rosemary's may have been prevented. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated just weeks after signing these bills. Some people reported that Rosemary had secretly attended Jack's presidential inauguration, but that is not true. She watched from Wisconsin with her staff and friends at the convent. She learned about Jack's assassination the same way. In Rosemary, The Hidden Kennedy Daughter by Kate Clifford Larson, the author stated, quote, Jack had been her escort to so many dances and social events when they were young. Both Joe and Jack lovingly teased her and treated her like the little sister she was. Bobby had grown up and become a man, but he too was assassinated in 1968. Her brothers had loved her. She had felt their love. And now, they were gone. When the Kennedys lost Jack, they lost much of their power and influence over legislation as well. But Eunice and her family found alternative ways to help. She and her son, Anthony Schreiber, collaborated to start Best Buddies, inspired by Rosemary. Which I also know of and did not know that that had anything to do with the Kennedys. Jean, their youngest sister, also founded Very Special Arts, in honor of Rosemary, to make sure that the arts are accessible to every person. Hospitals, schools, and facilities all over the globe have been named in honor of Rosemary Kennedy. Actually, when Anthony, Eunice's son, bought a house for his own family, he built an additional room so that Rosemary could visit him in his Miami home. He said that his aunt was, quote, a Kennedy through and through. She was very strong and determined, and he said that her personality shone through even with her limited communication. That's a big deal. Adding on an extra room to your house so that your aunt can come visit you. I think that also shows how much Rosemary meant to Eunice. Yeah, for that sure. she passed down that love and passion. Yeah. The interest that Rosemary sparked in my family towards people with special needs will one day go down as the greatest accomplishment that any Kennedy has made on a global basis. All of Eunice's kids ended up doing something to help the community. Rosemary's youngest brother, Little Teddy, went on to become a Massachusetts senator for more than 47 years, and he carried the torch for the family in furthering legislation in support of the disabled. He said, quote, Rosemary taught us the worth 
of every human being. Here come the waterworks again. Eunice visited Rosemary significantly more than any of her other siblings throughout her life, remaining the closest sibling to her as she had been since their school days. She took Rosemary to Special Olympics events, and people around them remembered watching Eunice force Rosemary to swim or sail when she did not want to participate. That sounds like you. (laughs) You're going to get out there, honey. In 1975, Rose sent a letter to Pat, quote, To remind you not to forget to visit Rosemary at St. Coletta. Two months later, she wrote another letter to Pat, and this time to Jean as well requesting that they make a trip. They didn't. Apparently, it was a habit because Rose wrote to Jean later, quote, You remember I asked you to go see her when Eunice was in Paris in the late 1960s, but you said you could not make the effort. A great disappointment to me. Which part part of me is like, yeah, freaking tell them off. That's ridiculous. They should have done it. But also, Rose, you didn't visit her for two decades. And you're her mother. A family staff member said that occasionally Rosemary would say, quote, Kathleen. Rosemary Kennedy died on January 7th, 2005, at age 86 in Wisconsin. Sister Margaret Ann said that in the last few years of her life, when Rosemary would wake up, quote, Her arms go out and her feet go out and she will button her buttons. I will take a couple of things and make sure they match and I'll let her choose. I know that when I buy something new, she will choose the new thing. (laughs) Still same old Rosemary. She was still Rosemary. The one who wrote her parents about Mary O'Keefe's new swimsuit that she got to try on and the red bows that she wore in her hair to the dance. The Catholic sisters in Wisconsin said that up until the end, she loved music, always. And she often did not want to leave the pool after working with her swim therapist. I will say um, also Rose went up there and like insisted that the nuns allow for a larger, like better swimming pool to be put in. And Rose paid for all of that for the nunnery. And so everybody at the facility got to use it. Like all the patients got to use it. But Rose had to like go there in person and like handle it and make sure it got done. So she did some cool stuff for Rosemary as well. Sister Margaret Ann said, quote, She knows her prayers by heart, like Hail Mary and the meal prayer. The word Jesus means a lot to her. There's a picture on the wall of Rosemary in a long dress with her mother waiting to be presented to the king. I think she remembers. But it's hard to tell because she can't tell you. But if you have a program like the Academy Awards with long dresses, she loves it and sits there watching so happy. Rose Kennedy was able to acknowledge her daughter's value before the end of her life. Quote, I cannot attempt to judge that which has been given to me, nor that which has been taken away. I could not begin to measure the pride, the pain, the enduring love, but I do sense and I do believe that Rosemary's gift to me is equal to the gifts of my other children. By her presence, I feel that she too has asked something terribly important of us. With her life itself, she too has shown us direction, given us purpose, and a way to serve. That has been her gift. When John F. Kennedy took office, intellectual disability was a severely neglected issue. 
There were hardly any scientists researching its causes, and even fewer doctors or educators were trained to support people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And we know how awful the institutions were. Jack and Eunice and Ted and Jean and Kick and Joe and Rose and Anthony, well, the Kennedys, linked arms and together they changed that. They brought intellectual disabilities out of the shadows and gave it the attention that allowed the world to start treating people like people. Those that would have been locked away or discarded by society can now participate in life and are part of their communities in ways that were impossible when Rosemary was a child. Eunice's son, Tim, who took over the Special Olympics from her, said in an interview that when he asked his mom what drove her so hard, she responded, anger. She said that after watching the struggles of her sister and visiting institutions and seeing this enormous amount of human suffering, and at the same time, coming from a place where women didn't have equal opportunity in sports, she just couldn't take it anymore. Sports Illustrated called Eunice a revolutionary. But Rosemary's life was the spark that lit the fuse. Eunice believed, quote, Rosemary sensitized us all to the gifts of the vulnerable and the weak. The Kennedys didn't change the world on their own, but they heard those that needed them, rolled up their sleeves, grabbed the hand of those beside them, and used their positions and their power to stand in the gap. This is Eunice. Quote, my life has been lucky in the adversity I encountered. I am lucky that I experienced the sting of rejection as a woman who was told that the real power was not for me. I am lucky that I saw my mother and my sister Rosemary treated with the most unbearable rejection. I am lucky that I have had to confront political and social injustice all over the world throughout my career. You might say, why are you lucky to have had such difficult experiences? The answer is quite simple. The combination of the love of my family and the awful sting of rejection helped me develop the confidence I needed to believe that I could make a difference in a positive direction. It's really that simple. Love gave me confidence and adversity gave me purpose. You will not be surprised to know that I believe that those were also the experiences that shaped President Kennedy. Truthfully, I believe Rosemary's rejection had far more to do with the brilliance of his presidency than anyone understands. Yes, he was our country's greatest champion of what we used to call mental retardation. To this day, his legacy of innovation in creating the NICHD the university-affiliated programs, and the President's Council remain unmatched in American history. But beyond the specific work he did for people with intellectual disabilities, I believe it was Rosemary's influence that sensitized him. Remarkably, I think I can say that not one author among the thousands who have written about him has understood what it was really like to be a brother of a person with an intellectual disability. And tonight, I want to say what I have never said before. More than any one single individual, Rosemary made the difference. 
quote, We must promote, to the best of our ability and by all possible and appropriate means, the mental and physical health of all our citizens. President Kennedy, February 5th, 1963. Just months before he died. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion. Some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors? In their homes? The most intimate moments of their time on Earth. Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, Episode 4 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. Rosemary was the Kennedy redemption story. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And what a beautiful story that we can all identify with. We all screw up. We all have ugly things that we don't want to pull out of the closet and, and we, we want to hide all, them. Our initial reaction is all just run. Bury it. You can fight that, that ugly stuff or you can let it dictate who you are. And the Kennedy siblings almost taught their parents that lesson a little bit of this, maybe this does define us, but let's change the ending of, or let's change the meaning of that definition, you mm-hmm. know? Cause she was the reason for everything. Like at the end and of the I, day. And I had, I had no clue. And when I started reading about this stuff, I cried by myself <laughs> I had no idea that the Kennedys did so much. And all I ever hear about is Marilyn Monroe and the freaking mafia and Frank Sinatra. And the lobotomy. And the lobotomy and how horrible and awful the Kennedys are. I beg to differ. Mm -hmm. The main source for this episode was Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter by Kate Clifford Larson. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. 